I uh, really appreciate Cece and um, her leadership in our worship time this morning, um, filling in for Cody. Cody is away this weekend. Um, I'm going to tell you guys something because he's not here. Um, so last week we uh, celebrated his mom's life um, and Cody spoke at his mom's funeral and did a great job, like so good. And I've actually been having this conversation with Cody over the last several weeks um, about him potentially speaking for us on Sunday, and you would think he was like allergic to it. Um, but after his mom's funeral, the memorial service, I was like, hey, dude, that was awesome. Like, I'm going to sign you up. You're going to teach for us. Um, and, and he didn't say no this time. So um, we're closer. I think at some point um, we're, we're going to get him up here and, and let him do that because he, he is a, a really, um, really, really good speaker. So, um, so that's going to be fun. Um, I also need to tell you uh, something else uh, because some of you on the way in this morning noticed my footwear um, and there is a story behind that. I, I told our staff this week, I need to be careful about the things that I say. Um, from the stage. So a couple of weeks ago, if you weren't here, I talked about how Ronaldo, our um, student ministry associate, he's always got a guy for everything, and he'd been uh, talking to me for months about getting a pair of Jordans or a pair of Dunks or whatever. And so my birthday is this Wednesday, um, and so our staff, uh, because you know spring break this week and stuff like that. So this last week on Tuesday in our staff meeting, they uh, got me my birthday present. Um, and I also said at some point, I think it was probably back in December, I, I mentioned the fact like if you give me something, even if I don't like it, I'll wear it um, once. So today is the day. Um, it's not that I don't like them, but that's the reason I'm wearing them today, Ronnie. So take my picture, submit it to Pastor Fashion or whatever it is, that, and we'll see what happens. So... Um, yeah, so that's, that's why I'm wearing what I'm wearing today, so it's fun, fun day. Let me pray and we'll, we'll get into the message. Father, thanks um, for the time that we have gathered together today. I pray that over the next few minutes that you would quiet our hearts um, and, and, and help us to hear from you. I, I pray, God, that you would speak uh, through me this morning to, to challenge us, and, and I pray that for myself, too, God, that I would be challenged um, through the, the things that uh, you have given to us in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so when Jesus said that, he said he meant the distinguishing characteristic of his followers was to be the love that they have for one another. Now, it's important to understand that when he said that, it was not exclusive to just followers of Jesus because he had already taught them that they needed to love their neighbor. And he defined that through the story of the Good Samaritan. So in the context that Jesus was referring to, it was somebody who is not just like you or lives next door to you, but somebody that's very different than you, someone from another ethnicity and culture. So that was a part of it. And Jesus also told the disciples that they were to love their enemies. But yet at the same time, near the end of Jesus' life, he said to his disciples, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So there is something special and unique about the love that followers of Jesus are to have for one another that's supposed to stand out to the rest of the world. The problem, in survey after survey, when non-Christians are asked 
about their thoughts towards Christians, no one ever says they love each other really well. They say things like they're judgmental, hypocritical, too political, all these kinds of negative things. That's the impressions that they have about Christians. Now, we could look at it and say, well, they're wrong. They, it's just a misconception that they have about Christians that those things aren't true, but here's the problem with that. Maybe it's the case. I don't know. But also, at the same time, studies show that among the top three reasons that people leave a church is due to church hurt. I'll define it this way. They were not loved well. Now, it could be that it was an unrealistic expectation, something happened, and so maybe it it was real or perceived, but either way, that's still what people say. They leave church because they're not loved well. I want to tell you a a story, um, something that I heard uh, back in the fall that, like, deeply troubled me. Um, and I want you to know now, I don't remember all of the specifics of the story, but I think the gist of this is basically what happened. So back in the fall, our staff went to a conference here in the Metroplex. And so I got there, I got there a little bit early, went inside and picked up the conference brochure. Uh, and then the, the first thing that was going to happen was a main session. So I went into the large auditorium where the, the main session was going to begin and began to flip through the conference brochure to pick out a breakout session uh, that I was going to go to. So after the, the main session, there were these smaller sessions to go to, and so you had to pick which one you wanted to go to. And so I was looking through, just scanning through the titles and the, the people who were presenting these things. I came across one that I thought was really interesting. It was called Rebranding the Church. And as I read it, I wasn't exactly sure what to expect, but I knew the guy that I knew of the guy that was presenting the session, so I thought, I, mean, I kind of know of that guy. Um, this sounds interesting, so I'll go to the session. And so later on in the, in the afternoon, I did that. And so the kind of the premise of the session was what I mentioned before, these perceptions that non-Christians have about Christians, that you know, Christians are judgmental and too political and hypocritical and all these other things. And he said, well, I feel like the church has a branding problem. Like, if this is the way we're known, but we know we're not supposed to be known by those things, then we need to rebrand the church, in that sense, tell better stories so that we're known by the things that we're supposed to be known for. And he said um, that he was just finishing up writing a book called Rebranding the Church. And then he began to tell us the story of writing the book, like his idea and things like that. So his idea in writing the book was to actually co-author the book with a branding or marketing expert, somebody outside the church. So not just a church person, but in general, a branding or marketing expert. And and this is the part, I don't remember specifically all the details. I think it was somebody in his church, he was mentioning what he wanted to do. And so he found somebody in his church that told him, hey, I know this guy. He's like the branding expert in the country reach out to this guy, I'll give you his number, and, and see if he'd be interested in helping you. And so he did. Reached out to him, asked, you know, told him his idea, hey, what do you think? I'll do kind of the biblical part, the church part, I just want, want you to help me with the branding parts of the book, and the guy politely declined. And I don't remember exactly now what happened, but he didn't give up, and so he reached out to the guy again, he said, hey, I, I really, I, 
like you to reconsider this. Um, you know, would you be interested in helping? And now the, the guy said that he would. He agreed to help him with the book. And so the pastor flew out to California where the guy was living, and they met together. And the, this branding expert, he said to him, listen, before we get started, I need to tell you why I said no in the beginning. So I really want to be honest with you. He said, and this branding expert is not a Christian, he said, the reason that I said no is because I felt like it would be immoral for me to help you. Because as I see the problems that are happening in our world, I think the church is the problem. But after you asked me the first time, I had some of our people look into you and do some research on your church. And I realized that these preconceptions that I had, they weren't true of you. You're different, and you have a story that's worth telling. And so we could look at it and say it's a, a branding problem, and we need to tell better stories. But unfortunately, I think in a lot of churches, it's not just a branding problem, it's an actual problem. We're supposed to be known by the love that we have for one another, but yet we are known for something very different than that. And so the challenge that I want to lay in front of us today is, can we get it right in a world that so often gets it wrong? This is the second week of our series, The Room Where It Happened. If you were with us last week, you remember it, it's covering some of the events and the teachings that happened in the upper room. Uh, really the day before Jesus was sentenced to death. And so last week we talked about how as the disciples entered the room, Jesus took off his outer garment and tied a towel around his waist. And in performing this act that was absolutely unheard of, he got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples. And he said at the end of that section, as I have done for you, you need to do this for one another. And it wasn't so much the act of foot washing per se as much as it, as it was the act, the humility that was behind the act, the, the service that was behind the act. And throughout the, the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room, it is focused on that. And today we're going to see the context of those words where Jesus said to his disciples, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so if you do have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to that section in John chapter 13. I'm going to read for us um, verses 31 through 35. John 13, 31 through 35. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen like it is every week. Or um, if you have the, the version app on your phone, um, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. Verse 31 says this, when he had left, and he is Judas, I'll, I'll comment on that in just a second. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another by this Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We actually are, are skipping ahead uh, just a little bit from where we left off last week. 
the section that we're skipping over this morning is where Jesus predicted his betrayal. Jesus told the disciples that one of them would betray him, and they were so shocked at what they heard, they had no idea who Jesus was talking about, to the point that each of the individual disciples wondered if it was them. That's how surprised they were with that news. Jesus said it would be the one that he would uh, hand the bread to, and so Jesus handed the bread to Judas, but even then it was still so shocking that the rest of the disciples had no idea still who it was, even though basically Jesus told them who it was in that moment. And then Jesus leaned over to Judas and said, whatever you do, go do it quickly. And he got up and left the room. So that's really what leads into the section uh, that I read this morning. And so at the beginning, Jesus begins by talking about that the Son of Man is now glorified. God is glorified in him. And so this, it's really what, what Jesus is saying is that the events that were leading to his death and the resurrection, they were unfolding. So now this was the time. Nothing else was going to happen. And he says in verse 33, I'll only be with you a little while longer, but where I am going, you cannot come. And then verse 34, I give you a new command that you love one another. And so it's as if in this moment, as Jesus is talking with the disciples, he's still saying to them, guys, there's one thing that I need to leave you with, something that you really need to think about, be focused on, make sure that when I'm gone, you're doing this. He says, I give you a new command, love one another. Now, what's interesting about that new command is that it was not new. It's in the Old Testament law that the Jews for centuries had been told, Love your neighbor. Jesus had talked to the disciples about the importance of loving other people on a number of different occasions, but now Jesus says, I give you a new command. And it was new in the sense that it was modeled after what the disciples had just seen and what they were getting ready to see. And so it's Jesus saying, I give you a new command that's based on what I just did when I got down on my knees and washed your feet, and then what you're going to see when I lay down my life for you, that's the love that you were to have for one another. It's a new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, love one another. And then verse 35, by this will all men know, all people know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. That's how we are to be known, by our love for one another. But yet we don't do it. Well, we don't do it well. And so I think for what I want us to do this morning is just kind of go back and lay the foundation for this. Let's define things a little bit and help us to understand what it truly means to love one another. First, I want you to know that to love one another means that we put the needs of other people before our own. Philippians chapter 2, I actually mentioned Philippians 2, like 5 through 11 last week, where the Apostle Paul writes about Jesus leaving the glories of heaven, not holding on to the rights and privileges of being God, but taking upon himself the form of a servant where he's obedient to death on the cross. Just prior to that, at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfishness or vain conceit, but consider the needs of others before your own. And then he said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So to love one another means that we put the needs of others before ourselves. But it's pretty rare that we actually do that. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this, if you've ever thought about why there are so many different churches. On some level, churches are formed based on preferences. Now, nobody's going to tell you that. You ask somebody, they're going to give you the, the, the right answer, which maybe not, it's not always the real answer. Uh, that's certainly not what pastors would tell you. That's not what the books tell you, because what the books will tell you is that the different churches are formed based on beliefs and vision. That's how churches are formed. So the reason that there are things like Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Church of Christ and whatever else you can come up with, the, the differences on some level are because there's a slight difference in belief about some, some thing. But then the reason that not all Baptist churches are alike or not all non-denominational churches are alike is because of vision. So God calls each of us to unique, uh, a unique vision, gives us a unique vision to it's the way in which we live out the mission that Jesus has given to us to make disciples. And so that's the reason for the uniquenesses. And I, I, I don't disagree with that on a leadership level. That's the way that pastors think. That's the way that we talk when we go to seminary. But I think there's the other side of it. It's like the, really the practical side of it. And that is that most people go to the church that they go to because of things that they like, preferential issues. So if you ask somebody, if I were to ask you, hey, why do you come to the table? I guess maybe somewhere there are people that are saying, like, I, when I go to a new church, I look for the vision, and that's what I want first. Maybe some people do that. But most of the time when you ask people, what do you like about your church? They say, the preaching's good. Or I really like the music. Or there's a certain program, ministry that they have. I really like that. So these are all subjective things that's kind of focused on me. Um, and they're most of the time preferential. I mean, that's just the way that we think. And I'm not saying that we should do something different. Like you should be attending a church that you hate everything about it. I'm not saying that. But yet at the same time, what would need to happen for our mindset to shift a little bit so that when somebody said, hey, what do you love about your church? We didn't list out the programs that we liked, but we said something like this. It gives me a great opportunity to love other people. And I get to be loved really well, too. Because Jesus said, this is how we're supposed to be known for the love that we have for one another. It's not just about our preferences, what we want, but how do we put the needs of other people first? Number two, what does it mean to love? It means that we seek to meet the practical needs of people. First John chapter 3, John being the author of First John, the same John who authored the Gospel of John, which I think is really his explanation of what it means to love. That's what First John is all about. So he says in 1 John chapter 3, if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother with a need yet withholds compassion from him, how can he say that he loves his brother? Let us not love just with words or speech, but in action. So if we're to love one another, it means that we seek to meet the practical needs that others have. Now, let me commend you all for this. I believe that this is a strength of our church. Uh, 
I, I, when people have needs, you often step up to meet those needs. Um, especially those of you who are involved in our community groups or part of one of our community groups. I hear stories uh, regularly about how in our groups the practical needs of other people are being met. Oftentimes before I even know that there is a need. If somebody has surgery, meals are already organized and they're taken care of. And I, sometimes I didn't even know about the surgery. Um, when somebody moves, people show up to help people get packed, those kinds of things. Uh, so you guys are doing that really well, seeking to meet the practical needs of one another. And so that's just another commercial. Um, we highly value group life. The reason being is because it's in that environment where you can be cared for. Uh, we want to do that. It's the best we can, but the best place to, to receive that love and that care where your needs are practically going to be met, it's, it's in a group. And I think that's the way it's supposed to happen. So we've got to seek to meet the practical needs of one another. That's what it means to love. And so because we are meeting the practical needs or physical needs, it's love not just when I want, how I want, but according to that need. So because it is not just when I want or how I want, and as we seek to meet practical needs of people, ultimately it is going to impact my ability, my time, and at some point it will also impact me financially. So when we hear about a need, our initial reaction, if we really love one another, should be, how can I meet that need? Not can I meet that need, or should I meet that need, but how can I meet that need? That should be the first way that we think. How can I meet the need? Not should I or can I, but how can I? Now, you may not have the ability or the availability to meet that need, and if you can't, that's okay, but our first reaction, how can I do this? Not should I or is somebody else going to do it, but how can I do it? And then I can take my time, I'll sacrifice my time, sacrifice my abilities to help someone else. And at some point, it also impacts us financially. So I'm going to talk about that for just a minute. Um, I think my least favorite subject to talk about in church is money, because the last thing that I want you to think is that that's all I care about. And so maybe I shy away from that too much. You know, the reality is Jesus actually talked about money a lot. And so because Jesus talked about it, we have to talk about it some as well. And so I want to talk about that for just a second. For, so for those of you that don't know, currently the only source of income that we have as a church is the generosity of people who are a part of the table, partners and regular attenders who give on a consistent basis. That is the only source of income. So your giving pays the bills, keeps the lights on, funds ministries, all of that stuff. Now, Again, I want to commend you all for something, because when we have needs, you step up consistently to meet those needs. Um, and so like, you know, Brandy talked about this morning, we talked about it last week, we're seeking to raise money uh, to send our kids to camp. You know, some of that's to offset the, the cost for some families. Um, that goal that we have, the $13,000, is both for students and kids, and we'll be highlighting um, students next week in our service. Um, and, and so all that money, that's, that's what that's for, is to, to offset some of the, a lot of the costs for that. But here's the deal. I know we're going to meet that need. 
We do every single time. And so, like, I am so appreciative of the fact that when we have a need, you all step up to meet that need, to go above and beyond. But it can't be just about meeting the need when the need is presented. Because I believe what Scripture teaches is that God's desire for us is open-handed generosity. Now, there are times where there's going to be a need presented, and it's above and beyond what is normal, and we need to seek to meet that need. We need to do that. But yet at the same time, regularly, I think Scripture teaches that God's desire for us is open-handed generosity, meaning I give not because I'm giving to something specific, because there's a specific need, but I just give because that's what God desires me to do. Now, I know that when you do that, you give open-handedly, that puts a lot of trust in the leadership. I understand that. Um, and we want to be good stewards of what is entrusted to us as a church. But I want you to know, when you give regularly, open-handedly, generously, what you are doing goes to meet the needs, both spiritual and physical, of people in our church, as well as people in our community. But I just want to challenge you with this. I'm going to give a caveat before I say it. So if you are new, if you're not really sure about if the table is your church or not, you get a pass on the next 30 seconds. But if you would say that this is your church, and the only thing that you do is show up on Sundays, how much do you love the other people around you? To love, as Jesus lays it out, this love that we have for one another, it's to put the needs of others before our own, it's to seek to meet practical needs of people. It's not when we want, but it's according to the need. Also, it's important to understand that love is not a command to obey, it must be from the heart. Now, love is a command. To love is a command, but it's not just a command to obey. I want you to listen to the words of psychologist John Sanford. He said this, The difficulty from a psychological point of view of this command is that love cannot be willed. The person who tries to love by an act of the will is likely to wind up with a person that looks like he or she is loving, but with a shadow side hidden in the unconscious that negates it. Love must come from the heart if it is to be genuine. It cannot be feigned, not even with the best of intentions. For us to love the way that Jesus calls us to in this passage, it has to come from the heart. So how do we do that? Well, the only way that we can do that is through heart transformation, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so it is as we understand how much we have been loved, that's what frees us up to love. So when we recognize that we have been loved to the point that the Father sent His one and only Son to lay down His life for us, to rescue us from our sin so that we could have a relationship with Him that lasts forever, that kind of love frees us up to love others. It's 9.55, and I've got 20 minutes worth of stuff left. Not that long. I'll try to get through it as quick as I can. So we've talked about what it means to love. Why is this so hard for us? Part of the reason it's hard is because we live disconnected lives beyond privacy fences. These are things that are within our culture. I don't know that we can completely change culture to overcome them, but we have to recognize the barriers and do everything that we can to fight through those barriers. 
because we live disconnected lives beyond privacy fences. And what I mean by disconnected lives is that we don't all live in a closed community. It's one thing to say, hey, let's love one another when we see each other every day. So we attend church together, we live in the same neighborhood, we work together, we go to lunch together. If we saw each other every day of the week, then we know the issues that are happening, right? If somebody is not in their their normal place on a given day, well, I need to reach out to them. Maybe they're sick or something's happened, right? Well, that's not the world that we live in. We live disconnected lives. We spread out throughout the metroplex, driving to work or some, you know, driving out to where we live and, and, and things like that. So we see each other once, maybe twice a week, and that's it. So there's this disconnectedness that creates a little bit of a barrier that we have to fight through. It doesn't mean that we can't do it. It just makes it a little bit harder to do that. So we have to recognize that disconnectedness. We also, in addition to living disconnected lives, we live behind privacy fences, how many of us have six-foot, maybe some eight-foot privacy fences surrounding our backyards because we do not want people to see in? Growing up, the first home that we lived in when I was a kid, we had chain-link fences that separated the yards. So you'd go out in your backyard, and if your neighbor was out in their backyard, you would see them. So you would know the things that were happening. When we moved, we moved between, in the summer between fifth and sixth grade. Then there were no fences between yards. And so I often played in the neighbor's yard and didn't know it because the boundary wasn't defined for me. But now we live in a world where we have privacy fences, and if a house sits on a hill behind us, we've got to figure out how to get some shrubs or bushes that go higher than the fence because the last thing that we want is for people to see what's happening inside. We do that physically, but I think it's also a metaphor for how we live. We don't want people inside because we're not sure that we can trust them if they saw what was there. So it's hard to love one another when that's the way we live. Another reason I think it's hard is because uniformity has replaced the beautiful diversity that is supposed to be in the church. I'll just tell you this really quickly. I believe that the church is to be a, a place where there is beautiful diversity of all kinds of different people who are committed to their faith in Jesus. Now, that's not manufactured diversity. I think it's just diversity that's reflective of the community. So we should be doing everything that we can to reflect the diversity that exists within our community from a socioeconomic perspective, a racial perspective, everything. Age perspective should be represented in the church. I think that's what the church is supposed to be. But because of the world that we live in where everything is sort of polarized, we tend to gather in clusters of sameness. And so because of that, we could actually love one another really well inside the church, but people outside the church would look at us and say, well, yeah, it's real easy because you guys are all the same. But what kind of testimony would it give to the world around us if we did reflect that beautiful diversity that is supposed to exist in the church? Where we could, and I, I, don't, I, wouldn't say, I think we're relatively good at this, but we need to fight to continue to be good at this. Like where we are a place where all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds can come and worship because of our shared commitment to Jesus. Like if we do that and do that well, that changes the narrative that takes place. Okay, so what do we do? How do we get it right in a world that so often gets it wrong? I'm going to give you three things. Show up, lean in, 
and stick it out. Show up. Show up regularly. Show up regularly on Sundays. Show up in your group. Show up for people. Even in those moments where you feel like you don't need it, maybe somebody needs you. So show up. And then lean in. Lean into those relationships. Find those people that you can trust and be a person who is trustworthy so that when people open up their gate and they let you in, like you extend love in those places that are so hard for us to let people see. Show up, lean in, and then when things get hard, stick it out. Because it is not always going to be easy. There are going to be relational challenges. We're all sinful people prone to hurt others' feelings and things like that. So show up, lean in, and stick it out. Because Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Will you pray with me?